Hi, this is CinePunk's Robert J.E. Simpson. Before you listen to this episode, I'd just like to share a content warning. CinePunk strives to engage in difficult conversations and connect with sensitive topics when appropriate. Today's conversation around fandom includes material that some may find difficult or potentially triggering, including a brief conversation around serious sexual abuses, harassment, and social and gender intolerances. Listener discretion is advised. This is Cinepunked. This episode, phenomenal. Hi, I'm uh, your host, Robert J.E. Simpson, and welcome back to uh, another Cinepunked podcast. And I thought, we've done an awful lot of film-specific stuff lately, and... We've been doing some thematical stuff based around altered realities. Um, but we've also been having a few conversations. Some of you may have noticed we've been having them on live streams, but we're having a bit of a conversation about uh, fandom and that whole world that that encompasses. Because I think for many of us, we're not just uh, watchers of these films, we're also fans of these films. And uh, I'm delighted to be joined today by our very special guest to talk with me about this stuff, uh, Dr. Bethan Jones. Hi, Bethan. Hiya, thank you for having me on the show. Uh, it's a pleasure, and I've been wanting to have you on to talk <laughs> to for such a long time. Um, we've known each other, at least in the social media world, for years, which yeah. is one of those bizarre things. But now I finally got an opportunity. And I, I mean, for anyone who, who's not familiar with your work, you've been brought on because you basically write, I would say, almost exclusively <laughs> on fandom. That yeah pretty much um i kind of i started writing about fandom because i come from fandom so um like i was involved in the x-files fandom from like 1994 when um, i first started watching the show and that led me to doing the phd um and then as i was doing the phd i was writing more and more about different fan spaces um and that kind of branched out into like anti-fandom and things we perhaps don't necessarily think about when we talk about fans um but yeah i've i've written a little bit about other stuff like crowdfunding and depictions of gender in science fiction, but the mm-hmm. bulk of my work is very much on fandom. Even something though that crowdfunding surely is is another sort of lens at which you're looking at a kind of fandom, isn't it? Definitely. Well, yeah, partly because I started working on that because we were looking at the Veronica Mars Kickstarter, um, which was obviously fueled by fans wanting um, to see like a new series of Veronica Mars. So there's definitely, I mean, the way I think about it and the way that I think we quite often see it nowadays is that fandom tends to permeate every aspect of our lives, um, mm. including like politics. So there's work being done on political fandom. Um, and you wouldn't necessarily think of that when you think about fans, like you usually either think of sports fans or, you know, TV or film fans. Um, but it's, it's becoming more and more integral, I think, to parts of our everyday lives, um, which makes it really interesting as a, as a kind of topic of study. Mm-hmm. Um. So one of the other interesting things, so for anyone, we, we try and steer away from particularly dry academia. And one of the things I like about the stuff that you do is it's very definitely not in a realm of dry academia. This is no. sort of a, a fun <laughs> space. I was reading one of your articles earlier today on Fifty Shades of Grey, <laughs> which was a delight because you actually, op- I mean, the way you even opened up that whole thing was was from a very accessible, approachable, enthusiastic fan way. And it kind of... It made a mockery of this idea that, that academia has to be, let's be honest, a bit dull. 
Um, so thank you for that. <laughs> well, thank you for saying that. Um, one of the things I tried to do, and again, I think it's because I come from fandom, so I've got that background of like engaging with the text that I love in in sometimes quite critical ways because fans can be really critical. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to open my work up to other people. I don't want it just to be academics reading my work. Um, plus, I've I've got like a creative writing background. I'm a story writer, so it's really good to hear from like an objective reader that actually yeah what I'm writing is quite accessible and, and easy to read so that's mm. really good to hear no 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 it, I mean it's, it's it's a delight and I, I'm also aware that another one of the, the sort of the the I mean for me one of the interesting things about how you've you ended up with your PhD was from Cardiff wasn't it mm-hmm. yep. um was that you've went down the line ultimately of past publication as a, as a means to do it, so yeah, I know this is of interest to a few people out there who listen who are interested in sort of the academic side of things. I mean, rather than you did start down the traditional PhD route, but then yeah. you've ended up doing it this other way. How, I mean, is is that vastly different? How did you find that as an experience? Um, I really liked it. Um, I I kind of went down that route almost by accident, um, and I don't think my supervisor was entirely pleased that I went down that route and I'm not going to name any names. Um, but yeah, basically when I first started the PhD, um, people were telling me you do a PhD, you publish, you present to conferences. So I went, okay then. So I did. Mm. Um, and I started off looking at gender in the X-Files fan fiction and, and along the way I got really interested in anti-fandom, um, which I'm kind of hoping we'll talk about a bit later because it's we will. fascinating. We will. Um, I love it. Um, so then I started kind of, you know, submitting to conferences and writing papers. And before I knew it, I was kind of less focused on the actual topic of my PhD by thesis and more kind of writing articles about things that interested me. Um, so kind of eventually um, my supervisor got a couple of promotions, moved to a couple of different institutions. I followed him. Um, at this point, I was also working full time for uh, Welsh government. So I was doing the PhD part time. Um and it got to the point that they were kind of family issues, which meant that um, I couldn't really continue the PhD. So I quit. I withdrew. Um, and I was speaking to a friend of mine who works at Cardiff because I got my master's from Cardiff. And Cardiff have got this thing where if you um, graduated from there within a certain period of time, they will actually consider you for a PhD by published works. And I was like, well, I may as well give it a go. I've got nothing to lose, you know. I've kind of accepted the fact that I'm not going to get a PhD, so Mm -hmm. give it a shot. So I did. Um, And I submitted uh, the application, submitted the seven, I think it was, papers that I was um, planning to to use as the PhD by published works. What it has to do is still speak to a key theme or a key topic. You can't just take seven completely random papers, you know, one about anti-fandom, one about... Um, I don't know, the growth of Facebook as a political platform, um, one about crowdfunding, medical care, things like that. It has to be on a specific theme. Um, and mine was on anti-fandom. So, um, so yeah, I collected them together, wrote a 10,000 word sort of introduction, um, you know, outlining what is original about my work, how does it build on existing content, how does it advance the field, that sort of thing, and submitted that. Um and in, in many ways, I kind of found it easier because I was writing as I was going along. Mm. But more importantly, I was getting involved in debates and dialogues that were happening kind of in, in real time. Um, the thing with a PhD by thesis, obviously, is that you spend 
a good sort of three years minimum collecting your data, reading the literature, um, you know, writing up your 100,000 words or whatever it is. Mm. Um, and it's, you know, I'm not saying that that is wasted, it's not, but you find that people may have published um, content that is relevant to you as or similar to you as while you were writing the thesis. Mm. Um, whereas the way that I did it, I was kind of involved in these discussions. So I could publish an article on anti-fandom and then someone else might cite that article and then I might cite their article in a subsequent article. So there's this ongoing dialogue, which I think really helps to kind of open up discussions within the field, um, but also means that the research you do for the PhD by published works is current, is, is amongst you know the, the kind of most up-to-date stuff that you can get. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of why I did that. And for me, it worked really well. Um, and I think as a model, it works quite well. Mm-hmm. But we we don't tend to do it a lot in the UK. It's far more common in, in kind of other European countries. Yeah, um, we, we don't do it. Because I remember, I remember looking at it myself at one point mm-hmm. as a possible alternative to uh, my own situation. Yeah. I, mean, I have a PhD that I had to abandon and, yeah. you know, I've never gone back to it as much as I really want to. Mm-hmm. Um, so looking at people like yourself who've been able to find that as a as a means to, to, to get that exploration out and also to do what what is quite good work. I don't, I don't, I mean, but it, but it is, I mean, it's, it's <laughs> thank you. <laughs> but is, I mean, when you're doing that kind of work, are you doing that currency? I mean, you've, you've published quite a lot. Yeah. Um, looking through your, you know, your list of, of, of publications, mm-hmm. the number of books you've been involved in, you're currently writing an X-Files book or editing an yes. X-Files book. I'm, yeah. So I'm writing a book about the X-Files. I'm co-editing a book on conflict, complicity and controversy in fandom. Mm-hmm. And we have also become, we had like some really, really good submissions for the book. So we are also now doing a special issue of Convergence Journal on the same topic. So yeah, there's a couple of things I'm doing right at the moment. I don't know how you find the time. I really don't. I I'm don't. Impressed. I don't. I haven't got a clue. But I, I see your stuff come up and I'm always very impressed with like, oh my gosh, there's something else. <laughs> um, so th- th- let's, let's talk about fandom um, okay. because I, I find it a, a really... <laughs> Like I think you've alluded to this already. I mean, it seems to be something that that's an inherent part of our engagement with any sort of form of popular culture. Yeah. If if we're if you're an active participant, if you collect stuff, if you go, just simply if you go, there is an element of being a fan there, mm. and and sort of the rituals that are accompanied by it. Um, as a place of study, it might seem a little bit left field for people. <laughs> Um, but I mean, how did you, you started off as a fan. I yeah. mean, what was your, what was your fandom? And I, I know this cause I've read your stuff earlier. So I mean, <laughs> so my fandom, uh, which probably will come as no surprise to anybody who knows me was, and is the exiles. Um, so I started off at first aid in the, the UK on BBC two, which is where I first watched it, mm-hmm. um, in, in sort of 1994. And at that point I was already kind of a science fiction fan because my granddad read a lot of science fiction. So, you know, things like, um, Isaac Asimov. So I was reading some of those short stories. Um, and I kind of heard about the X-Files coming out and I took a really dim view of it. And I kind of went in with this kind of really like snobby mindset of well it's not going to be real science fiction you know I've been reading Asimov that's real stuff this is going to be some silly ghost hunting series um you know (laughs) which which um is kind of not is not cool to admit I wasn't someone who was immediately going yeah this is going to be the next big thing I was really like dismissive of it Uh um and then I caught 
an episode and I'm I'm 99% certain the first episode I watched was Darkness Falls from season one, which right. um, it's kind of been lauded as, as, as kind of being like a really like ecological, um, like awareness raising episode. Um, but basically there's a group of loggers out in the woods somewhere and they um, cut down this tree and there's loads of green bugs in it. And um, they are, uh, are they attracted by light or no, they don't like the light. So when, you know, generators start sailing and things start getting dark, these little glowing green bugs sort of enter spaces and then cocoon the, the loggers in these cocoons obviously um and then Mulder's Scully going to investigate and I watched this episode and I was like oh my god this is amazing um and I just kind of fell down the rabbit hole and I've actually got um so I used to keep diaries um when I was a kid so I've got my 1994 diary which uh-huh. is covered in drawings of the X-Files X I've got various different <laughs> slogans written on it um and there's actually there's an entry in there which says, Mam says the X-Files is just a TV show. What does she know? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm kind of like, you know, it's, it's now at the point almost, um, well, almost 30 years later where I've got a PhD in which I talk about the X-Files. So it clearly for me wasn't just a TV show. <laughs> Love that. I hope you're using all this material in the book or in, in some am, of your writing. I am, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. I, it, I mean... Like it, it was a show that I also um, discovered. I, I I must have seen it and advertised because I seem to have seen yeah. it from the very start. And then there was a point at which it went on to Sky, and I remember yeah. having to tape it for a friend mm. every week. He was a horrible friend at times, but you know <laughs> I ended up recording the stuff for him. Yeah. And somewhere around there, I drifted away, so I didn't get to see how it ended. Oh. For another decade, <laughs> and then I bought them all on DVD yeah. and watched them. Then, and then I did a big, re- big rewatch whenever lockdown hit. Yeah, in 2020, I bought the Blu-ray and went through the entire run. Nice. Um, the entire run plus Millennium plus Lone Gunman. <laughs> Trying to do it in sort of broadcast order yeah. and the films, and <laughs> then I have bought some of the audio plays as well, oh, which cool. I have yet to get round to listening to. I'm not saying I'm a super fan because I'm not. I don't have a. I don't have a Mulder, Mulder and Scully standy yeah. anywhere, <laughs> or, or or cushions or anything else. Yeah, the amount of stuff I have is ridiculous. But it, it is one of those things. Like, I mean, it's nice to kind of know that there was obviously something about that show that was dragging us all in. And for yeah. me, I mean, do you know why it was for you? Because I mean, for me, I think it was it was the weirdness. I was quite into my weird. Um, yeah, and like that pulled me in i think there was that um there were kind of a couple of different things that that just converged at the right time i think um one of the big things was the chemistry between um david Jacobi and Gillian anson mm. who play melder and scully um and it's really um kind of interesting when you hear the sort of backstory for the casting because fox did not want Gillian anson they wanted someone more like a kind of Pamela Anderson, like conventionally sort of sexy um, woman to play Scully, which just would never have worked. Um, so Carter actually did kind of fight for Gillian Anson um, because, you know, she was really quite young and inexperienced at that point as well. Mm. Um, but you can see from the start, the chemistry between those two leads just works absolutely perfectly. So there was that aspect of it. Um there's obviously the kind of the whole weirdness thing going on um, mm. because we'd already had by that point, I believe Twin Peaks had come in sort of slightly earlier before the X-Files. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously that is you know, 
pretty weird with um, with Just David Lynch. <laughs> Um, but one of the big things that the X-Files did, um, which other shows hadn't done at the time, was to kind of um, merge this narrative storyline, so the myth arc that you see throughout each season, with the Monster of the Week episodes. Mm-hmm, um, mm. And that kind of hadn't really been done in TV previously. Um, so you can kind of appeal to sort of one-off viewers with episodes like Squeeze, um, ice the kind of you know standalone ones but then you can also kind of hook viewers with the myth arc um so there's almost like this this sort of broad appeal by virtue mm-hmm. of using these two kind of different like narrative techniques um and that is something that a lot of shows since have kind of picked up on um the x-files was was kind of one of the forerunners of this particular style of storytelling mm-hmm. um and fox never really thought it was going to be that much of a hit. Um, I think they first um, aired it after it was some sort of cowboy show. Um, I want to say something like The Adventures of Briscoe County Junior, but I'm not 100% sure whether that is the title. Um, and that is the one that they were banking on becoming popular. Um, but it didn't. The X-Files did. Um, and it became, you know, this cult text, which I would argue now is it's it's become a neo-cult text. Um mm which is an article that I'm currently writing in relation to the X-Files. Um, but it, it took off and it became absolutely huge and it was this worldwide phenomena. Um, so, yeah, a couple of different things, I think, really kind of contributed to that success. So for you, I mean, so this is the one that you cite as being your kind of big uh, leap into into fandom. I mean, I'm aware mm. that you also were interested in certain bands and things as well. Yeah. So there's 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 multiple fandoms are going on, but yeah. this is the one that that has stayed with you. Yes, helped your career. My gosh, I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and what sort? Of, I mean, for you, how did you personally engage with that fandom? I mean, what was your kind of way of participating? Because I think this is the thing that a lot of people maybe don't realize that mm. they're doing is in how they participate in the fandom because it's. I mean, I suppose it's enough just to watch something, but I think it's when you start going beyond. So I'm interested in your beyond. Yeah. So I think there's there's kind of two different things. And being a fan and being involved in fandom aren't necessarily the same. Um, So you can be a fan of something and never engage with other people. Um, It's when you're in fandom. So, you know, you think of the term kingdom. um, Fandom is similar. It's kind of this group, this collective, this community or whatever. Um, And fandom nowadays... Not so much in the behaviours, but certainly perhaps in the access points is quite different to when I was a kid and when Mm. I was first a fan of the X-Files, because I didn't know the internet. So um, I would watch the X-Files on a Sunday night on BBC Two, and then I'd talk about it with my friend in school the next day, because one of my friends was a fan, and my English teacher was also a fan. Um, So those were the only two people I would talk about the show with, but, you know, we'd be like, oh, did you see it last night? It's a really exclusive club, isn't it? It really was. Um, I also started writing fan fiction, um, which I wrote, you know, longhand in, like, a exercise book and this is pre-internet fan this fiction. is pre-internet yeah um, so without having that kind of ability to yeah okay yeah um it was literally just it was because we got the internet uh actually i got hold of the internet in school um when i was probably about 16 17 mm-hmm. and the reason i remember this is because um I went up to the Hay Festival as part of something called the Beacons Project. And in one of the rooms, they had these um, kind of different 
really old school computer setup, you know, some big CRT monitors. And the first thing I did was go onto AOL online and search X-Files to look for X-Files chat rooms. <laughs> so, so that was the first thing I did when I got hold of the internet. Um, but, but before that, I didn't, I didn't have it. So all I had literally was like a pen of paper, my imagination. And my English teacher, um, so I'm from Wales, I went to a school in Wales, and we have annualised devfods, which are um, kind of creative uh, events where you kind of write poems, write stories, maybe like perform dances, um, you know, perform songs, things like that. And one of the story prompts that my English teacher uh, gave us for, the, for that Eisteddfod was write a story about Mulder and Scully. So my first piece of fan fiction was Mulder and Scully came to Aberdeen and they were investigating UFOs or ghosts or something in the woods near my school. And me and my sister went and helped them. So it was a massive Mary Sue self-insert fan fiction featuring Mulder and Scully. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, and then so, so from there... Um, when we got the internet at home, I discovered the BBC Cult message boards, mm-hmm. which sadly no longer exist. Um, no, yeah. But they were amazing. Like, so I joined these forums and talked about the X Files with other people, um, who people I didn't know, people who were on the internet, but were still fans of the same show as me. And I kind of, you know, wrote and published fan fiction um, on those boards, which I still have on floppy disk, but I've got no way of reading the floppy disk. So I don't know how bad they were. <laughs> small mercies eh? yeah i know so um so yeah so that kind of um spiraled um and at that point you know internet fandom i think we all are kind of fairly common um fairly common these days you know we're all probably used to it um and that's one of the ways like i said earlier um about fandom being part of our everyday lives mm-hmm. i think the the growth of the internet and technologies like smartphones really mean that we can engage with our fandom at any point in time so if you like a band page on Facebook and you're scrolling through your Facebook and a post pops up, you are engaging with that fandom. So you're mm. not having to go to a specific place like the BBC Cult message boards in order to talk to people. You you kind of almost get it delivered to you mm-hmm. within the context of your everyday life. Um, so that is kind of, you know, I think some of the ways that um, access points to fandom have, have kind of expanded Um and the way that we consider fandom now is very different to the way media fandom particularly was considered in sort of the late late 80s, early 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, back then it, you were just a single geek living in your parents' basement and you know, who couldn't get a girl. That was kind of the view of science fiction fans. I'm that's, pretty sure that's still me, to be honest. <laughs> I don't think that's changed. Oh, I don't know. We've now got things like Marvel, like, you know, airing, preview trailers at comic cons and things like that and it's mm. it's become a massive industry as well yeah i mean certainly it's a lot easier to find your to find your tribe mm-hmm. um than it used to be uh like i mean like I'm, I'm a similar age to yourself so i mean like a lot of it's like i remember in the 90s it did feel much more remote yeah that you know, it was in school that you maybe find a couple of people who were into the same stuff. I set up a Doctor Who society when I was at school. Awesome. Um, and that was the 90s yeah. when it wasn't cool. <laughs> <laughs> and we got mur- mocked mercilessly for it. Yeah. <laughs> um, which meant that a lot of people would just drift away. And I still probably wore my badge every yeah. day. Um, but I mean, like that was hard. And mm. fandom was at such a remove. You know, there wasn't the same access to groups and events and also, like Northern Ireland in the 1990s, yeah. you know, think people didn't come here. 
so for me like fandom was always so much more remote it was only mm. when the internet came in that like yourself you know i mean the cult forums i don't think i engaged in too much yeah I remember finding a group of Buffy fans and writing Buffy fan fiction yeah. on, I think it was one list for a <laughs> while. Um, and then I found the Hammer fandom, which ended up sort of being a career for a while yeah. um, in, a, in a completely unexpected manner. But like by the time you get to the 2000s, everything changes and yeah. everything is so much more accessible. Massively so. So, I mean, I mean, I'm also wondering, I mean, one of my constant questions, and we, we talk occasionally about this, is mm. about how that is now controlled as well, the sort of the gatekeeping mentality that exists yes. around fandom. I mean, in the past, as somebody who's engaged in fandom, you obviously have people who pro- produce content mm-hmm. and people who consume content, and mm-hmm. it felt very, it was quite binary in that sense. Yeah. Whereas now every Tom, Dick and Harry is producing some sort of content if they're engaging with the fandom. Yeah. Everybody's doing memes. Every, see, I see less of the fan fiction, although I gather it all still exists. I just oh, don't go those places exists. anymore. Yeah, it kind of moved. Um, so fanfiction.net was one of the big spaces for fanfiction um, back in the day. What we have now is Archive of Our Own, AO3, mm. which um, is a really interesting platform because it is linked to the Organisation for Transformative Works, which um, is an organisation kind of set up to, um, in some ways, sort of protect transformative works, so fan fiction, fan art, fan video, stuff like that. They've kind of got a legal arm because there have historically been various legal issues mm. with fan fiction and fan viz in terms of copywriting. But they also um, have the Journal of Transformative Works, which is an academic open access um, peer-reviewed journal that publishes work on fan studies, um, which is where I've published. So it's a really interesting, it's kind of, for me, it's interesting that this umbrella organisation, the OTW, has this fan fiction arm to it, and then also this academic arm to it as well. Um, and AO3 it is now huge. There's a lot of fanfic being published on there um, mm. in various different fandoms. Mm-hmm. And qualities. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yeah, oh, I, think, no. <laughs> I think AO3 tends to skew, although this might be my bias because, you know, I only read in certain fandoms, so it, it tends to skew perhaps a little bit better than mm. the fic you might find on fanfiction.net or Wattpad. Um, but, you know, as with most places, there is going to be some really good quality stuff and some less good quality stuff. I see, and this is a game where I think the the kind of gatekeeping comes into things. This idea that there are certain people who decide what 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 shouldn't shouldn't be allowed mm-hmm. in terms of fandom, in terms of how we access that fandom, and in terms of who has the right to an opinion on on that yes. stuff. And I, I don't know. I have such mixed feelings about it myself as both a content producer and a content mm-hmm. uh, consumer, because I know the need for editing and somebody to kind of have a bit of sense yeah but at the same time in terms of fandom the last thing you want to do is to exclude anyone from being able to engage in something that they love and they enjoy yeah so it's it's kind of i don't know how i feel i don't know i I, I mean grief i hope i'm never a gatekeeper but um occasionally i do feel like certain people shouldn't be allowed near a computer (laughs) yeah (laughs) Yeah, I, I don't think I would disagree with you in that respect. Um, and it's interesting kind of being an academic study in this as well, because and I'm, I'm going to use Twilight as, as a key example, because yeah. um, 
it's fascinating. So Twilight, I imagine most people listening to this are familiar with it, um, but it's a series of young adult books uh, written by Stephanie Mayer about uh, this unassuming girl um, who moves up to Washington State to live with her dad and she meets this guy who's a vampire and meets this guy who's a werewolf and there's this whole love triangle thing going on um, and it is right so with my academic head off um, <laughs> just kind so of this caveat is Beth, this. Beth and the Fan now this is Beth about? and the Fan <laughs> okay. this is specifically Beth and the anti-fan who hates Twilight <laughs> <laughs> it's I think it's badly written um, uh-huh. I think it kind of reproduces these just ridiculous tropes that paint um, essentially stalking and kind of sexual harassment as romance. Um, it's got, I think, some really not great views about sex and sexuality, which kind of isn't a surprise because Stephanie Mayer, who wrote it, is, is or was a Mormon. So mm-hmm. she is you know, going to be obviously influenced by that religion. Um, and I think it's just horrendous. And as someone who does kind of watch vampire texts and as someone who loves Buffy, like vampires do not sparkle. That does not happen. Um, <laughs> so kind of with with my non-academic head on, I'm like, this is an awful text. Like I hate this text uh-huh. for many, many, many different reasons. But with my academic head on, it's actually really fascinating because... Twilight as a text allows young girls in particular to um, perhaps explore their own sexuality. They're being kind of um, exposed to a very safe relationship, um, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and they get to kind of almost sort of live vicariously through um, Bella. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of, you know, see what happens with these two different guys, with Edward, with, with Jacob. Um, and it's also fascinating because the discourse around it is very gendered. And as with most things, Twilight fans are ridiculed because they are generally female. Um, mm. So there's there's these huge discourses that came out both when the Twilight books were published, but also when the films came out. And, you, you know, you had Team Edward and Team Jacob and you had fans kind of, you know, screen over Robert Pattinson and various other actors. And these fans, predominantly the young female fans, were painted as like hysterical, over-emotional. They were these really like 18th century gendered terms being used to discuss these fans and this particular sort of fan behaviour. Mm-hmm. And that's fascinating because I'm like, well, that is such a key instance of gatekeeping. Um, mm-hmm. So you have, and there's a couple of other examples. So when Twilight um, went to Comic-Con, they were all of these sort of grown men be like, you know, Twilight is ruining Comic-Con. You've got all these girls coming into this space. And it's like, dude, seriously, you know, this is not a space just for you. But there was kind of uproar. Um, but also Muse, um, the, the band's music was used quite a lot in the Twilight films. So you ended up with a lot of Twilight fans joining the Muse fandom because they'd heard of them as a result of the films. So mm. then you've got all of these Muse fans being like, oh my God, Twilight fans are taking over our space, you know. They're not for Twilight fans. They're not for you. Um, they were cool long before Twilight existed. You know, we don't want you in our in our spaces. So they are like these really clear examples of gatekeeping. Um, you see, you know, predominantly in Twilight, but in tons of other examples um, uh-huh. of media texts. And a lot of it is related to gender and race. 
Um, mm -hmm. You know, the 2016 Ghostbusters is, is a prime example of that. Um, and it's it was horrendous um, seeing a lot of the discourse that was kind of being, you know, spread on social media sites when that first came out. And and, and still continues to do so to a point there. I mean, I am... I'm one of those people who actually quite enjoys that film. Um, yeah. I, I apparently have bought it three times now on Blu-ray for some reason. <laughs> I do not know why I've ended up with three copies of it, but I have bought it three times. And I have watched it multiple times and I get a lot out of it. Yeah. And I don't get that sense of... Um, I don't know why people are, have persisted with this attitude that mm -hmm. was pre-written before the film even came out. Yeah. Um, I mean, a lot of the people who've criticised it still haven't seen it. Yeah. So, like, I mean, I really don't care what you think because you <laughs> haven't seen the film. And, yeah. And, you know, like, also, in case they haven't noticed, all the fucking original stars are in there. They've all endorsed yeah, this thing. Exactly. Give it a chance. I know. It's it's crazy. And, and it kind of, it, there was this whole discourse of, you know, Ghostbusters reboot ruined my childhood. And... <laughs> And on, on the one hand, I'm like, yeah, I understand as a fan how attached we can become to these texts mm. and they will have specific meaning for us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if people criticise that text, it can feel almost like a personal criticism because you love that text so much. But at the same time, I'm like, if a remake of, or a reboot even, it's not even a remake, a reboot of a film you loved as a child, um, you know, sort of 30 years later, is ruining your childhood. How insecure do you have to be? Um, you know, and if, if that isn't a performative statement, which in some cases I'm sure it was, just this performance of disgust. Like, mm. seriously, how insecure do you have to be that this remake, which is aimed at a totally different audience, is ruining something from your childhood? It's... it's it's weird. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm I'm aware on on Twitter you're memory's child. So, yes. You know, we're actually just. I don't know if that has any correlation with this at all, but it strikes me that, that a lot of this is. You know, we're talking about fandom and memory. Yeah. And that sort of association. I mean, how much of fandom is? Do you think um, our connection with those sort of nostalgic, emotional things? Because I'm I'm aware, especially over the last two years, mm -hmm. a lot of folk who maybe haven't previously have gone and absorbed themselves in nostalgia. As I've said, I, I went and rewatched the entire X-Files yeah. and loved it. I'm currently doing a rewatch of the modern Doctor Who <laughs> um, for the first time. And then the, the last couple of days, I, I discovered the new Fraggle series, oh, cool. um, which is creating all kinds of weird mixed nostalgia for me yeah. because I don't have... I have great impressions of the original series as a kid, but I haven't rewatched it since then. Mm. And like, I, I, I forgot to end the first episode and I'd be tears down my cheeks. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's hitting something for me. Yeah. Um, but I mean, for you, like, what are your thoughts on this? And I mean, how much of a fandom is for you a nostalgia or is it tied into memory? That's, it's a really, really good question. Um, and there's sort of a couple of different, but maybe linked answers. Um, my username actually comes from uh, a song that was used in the 2008 X-Files movie. So there is that link again to my fandom. Mm -hmm. um, but there is more and more we've been done on nostalgia in relation to fan practices. Um, so thinking again, you know, about the X-Files and Twin Peaks, when both of those revivals came out, um, I conducted like really extensive research. So I did a couple of different surveys with um, with viewers, with fans. 
I had something like just under 3,000 responses. So like there was wow. there were a ton of people that wanted to share their opinions. But what was really interesting was the amount of people who talked about the texts in relation to their childhoods or in relation to kind of the first points at which they watched it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of actually ended up giving a, a conference paper, um, it was at the start of last year, looking specifically at nostalgia um, because it was it was a huge part of the revivals, not necessarily in the reasons for the revivals to be kind of greenlit in the first place, although I'm sure that had a, an element of it. You know, you know that if you revive a previously kind of successful, popular um, franchise, you're going to make money off it. Mm. You know, that that's kind of a given these days. Um, but it was interesting that a lot of people... Um, they were talking about watching the revivals in relation to how they engaged with fandom back in the day when, you know, we didn't have Twitter. Um, we didn't have Facebook. We couldn't interact with, you know, David Coveney on Instagram or Julian Lance on, on Twitter. Um, and and there were some really kind of interesting points when people were like, I was like a teenage fangirl again. You know, I went back to this period in my life where I was fully absorbed in this fandom. And, you know, for the hour that this was on and, you know, for the half hour afterwards where I was engaging with this text with my friends online, I was, again, a teenage fangirl. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was really interesting. And, and there were other points where people were talking about, well, you know, actually, when I first watched the show, I watched it with my friends and, you know, 15 years later, they passed away. So it's really bittersweet. I'm watching this now and I'm thinking of when I used to watch this show with my friend. So it's taking people sort of back into different times and spaces mm-hmm. of, of kind of their childhood and of their history with these texts. Um, and I, I really want to do some more work on it. I, I want to write a book about fandom and nostalgia, to be honest, because it's really, really interesting. Um, and I think there's a lot of stuff that that can be sort of uncovered, um, particularly in relation to other work that's been done about fandom and the life course um, mm-hmm. and kind of different entry points to fandom exit points and then re-entry points because what you'll find is you know your fandom quite often goes like that it's not yeah. kind of a you know i join the fandom and then this is my level of financial engagement for the rest of my life um so i think there is particularly with revived series definitely this sense of nostalgia um and sometimes like over the pandemic i rewatched a lot of stuff i rewatched buffy mm-hmm. um i rewatched um Oh, I've forgotten the name of the bloody show. Um, I rewatched Castle. Um, I rewatched. I rewatched Friends, and there's a sense of comfort, I think, in some respects, with watching those, especially in the middle of a global pandemic mm. when you know no one knows what the fuck is going on, and everyone's kind of just terrified about what what the next day, the next week is going to be like. So there mm. is a sense of of kind of comfort in going back to these texts that we loved when we were younger. Um, and also knowing how they turn out. Um, you know, I can, I'll still rewatch the X-Files, even though at this point I know some of the episodes word for word. So I'm literally there kind of like speaking along with all of the characters because I've seen them so much. But I still love them and I still laugh at, at various points because I know what's coming up. Uh-huh. Um, so there's that kind of anticipation involved as well, but it's anticipation because I've seen it so many times before. So there's there's kind of really interesting things going on. Um, and because of the way that fandom functions in terms of like communities and stuff and families, um, I think there is a lot of these texts that we do end up 
kind of relating back to, to points in our lives that were particularly important or memorable for whatever reason. So we kind of have these fandoms almost as tethers to our past for whatever reason, um, which obviously doesn't negate you know, the fact that those fandoms and our feelings towards them might change over time. Mm. Um, but there is this this kind of strong linkage, I think, um, to to memory and to nostalgia that we see coming into play with some of these fandoms. So it, it, it's, it's move on slightly from this because th- this is all fascinating. But I, I also <laughs> know that one of the things that th- that interests you and actually mm-hmm. I mean interests me as well is this sort of realm of anti fandom and and also I think toxic fandom. I think yes. I want to kind of I think the two things probably come. They're probably the same thing in many respects. I don't know. Maybe you feel differently about that. <laughs> um, I definitely think they're 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 very close bed partners, if nothing else. Yeah, there are. A lot of similarities between them, but I do think they are two distinct things as well. So you have written quite a bit on anti-fandom rather mm-hmm. than toxic fandom, I yeah. think. Um, so anti-fandom, can you explain that for somebody who doesn't yes. understand what that term is? Because I'm sure there are folks at home who are going, what's anti-fandom? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's it's a theory that was first proposed by Jonathan Grace back in 2003. Um, and he published this article where he pointed out that if we are looking at audiences um, and in looking at audiences, we focus on the fans, we lose a lot of meaning because we are not looking at the people who actively dislike a text or kind of aren't really bothered one way or the other. Um, and you know that makes a lot of sense. Um, so he kind of proposed this idea. So there are fans who we are familiar with, you know, they love a the text, they engage with it in, in different ways. They might be part of fan communities. There are non-fans who might, you know, watch something when it's on telly, but not be particularly bothered if they miss it. Um, we can, might also call them sort of casual viewers. They don't really yeah. engage in any any particular like affective response, either in a positive way or a negative way. And then there are anti-fans. Um, and in Gray's first sort of um, uh, iteration of anti-fandom, they were people who kind of actively disliked a text. They were bothered by it. And you could be an anti-fan without ever having watched the text. This so Ghostbusters fans again. Exactly. <laughs> so what we have... Um, is paratext, which are things that exist around the text itself. So you've got the X-Files, that's the text. But in terms of paratexts, we've got interviews with Chris Carter, Duchovny, Julian Nansen. We've got um, trailers. We've got fan fiction on kind of the, the unofficial paratext side. We've got uh, behind-the-scenes commentary on DVDs. There's, um, I don't know, pre-release reviews um, from people who've you know seen the first episode of season 10 before it was on general release. So all of these things work to build up a picture of that text in people's minds. And some people will be like, oh my God, that sounds amazing, really interested. Other people will be like, oh my God, this is science fiction. I hate science fiction. It's going to be shit. So they've never engaged with the actual exiles in this instance. They've never watched an episode. But they are using those paratexts and their understanding of the genre to be like, this is something I'm never going to like. So that was kind of the real genesis of of anti-fandom. What's really interesting, I think, is that that has always been a part of fandom. It's just never really been theorised in that way. So when Jenkins, Henry Jenkins, published textual reporters in 1992, it's like one of the key fan studies texts. 
And he points out that fandom is a mixture of fascination and frustration. You mm. know, fans are fascinated with the text, but they also have some frustrations with it. And that's why people you know, write fanfic or create fan videos and stuff. Um, but early work in the field was very much looking at the positive side because fans were seen as weirdos. So there was like a you know an actual attempt to portray a slightly more positive picture. Um, but then uh, Gray comes in in sort of 2003 and builds up his work, builds up these definitions of anti-fandom. And there are different reasons why we might dislike a text. Mm-hmm. Anti-fandom as a behaviour, though, kind of goes a bit beyond like uh, disliking a text. So much the same as fandom goes beyond liking a text. You know, if you're a fan, you will engage with it in some way. You'll you know, tweet about it after an episode or you write fan fiction or you'll join Facebook groups and, or, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. anti-fandom can function in a very similar way so you will have people who hate watch um films or, or tv episodes and then blog about it um you will have people mm-hmm. who hate read 50 shades of gray um and, and there was a whole series there was a whole youtube series about kind of someone hate reading 50 shades of gray um there are, like a bit of, bit of, bit of pseudomasochism in its own right <laughs> a little bit yeah um and you, you kind of you can see this so there's there's various communities there was um one community i think was on live journal called twatlight which was kind of a, a twilight anti-fan community right um they there are people who you know posted memes saying you know i'm, I'm reading twilight so you don't have to um uh-huh. so there are all of these practices which are very similar to fan practices but kind of at the opposite end of the spectrum um and that is what i find really interesting and the reason I find it interesting is because of my X-Files fandom, because when I started writing fanfic, I found Diana Fowley as a character really interesting. She was introduced um, sort of end of season five. She was kind of brought in as this sort of love interest for Mulder. Um, she had been involved in setting up the X-Files before the, the show actually like existed, sort of mm-hmm. um, before we see you know, the, the pilot episodes in season one and stuff like that. Most fans hated her, like legitimately wanted her to die in horrible, painful ways. And there's a lot of fan fiction, which is basically Fowley being killed off because fans hated her. And I'm like, this is really interesting. Like as a character, she's kind of written in quite a similar way to Scully and people are going to hate me for saying that. But some of the things that, that Scully is kind of subject to because of her gender uh-huh. Fowley is also kind of subject to but fans would rewrite those stories with Scully they wouldn't with Fowley they'd kill her off and I was like this is fascinating I tend to write a lot of, of Diana Fowley fan fiction because it's really interesting um, so that's how my interest in anti-fandom kind of developed and I'm, I'm really intrigued in understanding sort of why people hate these texts the way that they perform that hatred you know the different kind of fanish behaviours and then mm. that has extended out into things like racism, um, sexism, misogyny, you know, harking back to Ghostbusters again, as Ghostbusters again. Ghostbusters anti-fandom does actually draw on these really um, harmful and in some cases quite violent discourses around race and around gender. Mm. Um, and, and that I find interesting because it kind of in some ways goes beyond um, the kind of acceptable fanish behaviours um, and it ties into you know all other discourses relating to kind of our society and our culture um, so I mean 
I mean, it's interesting because I'm aware of, of elements of this and having encountered a lot of it. I think I've probably chosen to not engage with a lot of those kind of mindsets mm-hmm. and communities that yeah. exist. So I feel like there's an ethnographic exploration that probably needs to be done to understand this. And I don't yeah. know if I'm quite ready to, <laughs> to go down that, that pathway and to sail into that country. But yeah. um, so when you have that kind of that very negative space that exists out there. I mean, how much of that is, is something that's endorsed and permitted by the fandom? Um, it varies. I mean, because obviously if you're talking about a fan, a, 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 I mean, when you're talking about something like the, that particular fan fiction about, you know, that character, mm-hmm. that in itself also sounds like whilst it's anti-fandom, it's also coming from a fandom Oh yeah, mindset. Yeah, totally. So it, it, it's anti-fandom isn't even separate from fandom. It's, it, it's, it's, it's on that spectrum. That. Um, what Grey calls the anti-fandom and fandom like a Mobius strip. Um, so it's uh-huh. you know it's almost the, the, the two different sides of the same coin, um, and and you do get anti-fandom within fandom. So like you know one of the kind of key examples is you're either a Star Wars fan or a Star Trek fan. You can't be both. You know if you if you're a fan of one, you immediately become an anti-fan of the other. And we mm-hmm. see that in sports a lot. Um, so obviously I've been watching the Six Nations at the moment because the rugby is on and I support Wales. Uh, so as a matter of course, I do not support anyone who plays Wales. <laughs> so by virtue of being a Wales fan, I'm an anti-fan of all of the other Six Nations rugby teams. Uh-huh. Um, so we see that that does exist. It, you know, it, it is, it, like I said, that kind of spectrum of fanish behaviours kind of goes from fandom to anti-fandom on the other side. And it does get endorsed within fandom. Um, one really interesting example is One Direction fans who um, there was this whole intra-fandom conflict between those who shipped um, Harry Styles and Louis Tomlinson, um, also the portmanteau known as Larry Stylinson, and the, the fans who really opposed that ship for multiple reasons. Um, but yeah, it, it kind of escalated into like these Twitter wars with death threats being thrown around and, and things like that. So it very much exists within fanish spaces, as well as existing kind of maybe on the outside of fandoms or kind of directed at particular fans of certain things by mm. maybe the dominant fan group or a very vocal minority. Is it a tribalism? I mean, is is it is it is it too simplistic to look at it as a as a form of tribalism within the greater communities about trying to sort of mark your territory there, I think there is an element of that there um, again like you know thinking of the the male comic con fans who were like really yeah. opposed to Twilight coming into that that um, area that I think is a sense of kind of protecting this space and in some respects I think that could come from this kind of long standing history within science fiction fandom that science fiction fans have been denigrated, they've been othered, you know, they're, they're seen as just these, these weirdos. Um, so when you've got a very mainstream uh, text like Twilight invading that space, for want of a better word, you know, the barriers go up. So you kind of like, well, no, this is my space. I want to protect my space because mm-hmm. historically I haven't had this space, which, you know, white men, you can't really make that argument very well um that there is that sense of boundary protection and you do get that a lot in fandoms and again like i mentioned earlier if you've got a text that you have this really strong connection with um Mm. if someone comes in and starts maybe criticizing it 
you do kind of take it personally. So you kind of don't want these people saying these things about your fandom. But there's also, which I think we see in the One Direction um, schism, this sense of um, almost legitimate identity. So One Direction, obviously, they are a boy band. Um, they mm. are a manufactured boy band. So they're already kind of at the you know the bottom end of the hierarchy in terms of music. <laughs> um, you know, they, they're pop. They are not, you know... Your... They're up there with the monkeys. I mean, <laughs> come on. <laughs> yeah, but they're, they're not kind of, you know, the... the perhaps what connoisseurs of music um, yeah. might find, you know, highbrow. Um, so there's there's that to begin with. They are followed by teenage girls who we've already seen are very much treated as these hysterical, emotional females who can't control themselves. Mm. Um, and One Direction is well aware of this, you know, that they're not immune to stories in the press about, you know, these crazy teenagers. So when you've got one faction of the fandom openly um, shipping two characters, I say two characters, they're real people, albeit, you know, real people with a persona. Um, so you've got fans who are shipping them. They're openly shipping them. So they're tweeting mm. about Harry and, and Louis. They are kind of spreading these conspiracy theories that they are actually together, but the management are stopping that from being public because it'll affect their popularity, stuff like that. Um and it also makes its way into kind of wider discourse. So there's, there's kind of far more um, discussion in the press about, oh, look at these crazy girls shipping these two boys. Um, so when you have that happening within your fandom and it's very, very visible, you want to distance yourself as mm. members of that fandom. You're like, well, no, we are legitimate fans. You know, we're not these crazy people that think Harry and Louis are together. So there's that sense of we are legitimate fans. We have got a legitimate identity because we perform acceptable fan behaviour. Mm. These people are not performing acceptable fan behaviour, so they should be, you know, critiqued and denigrated and, you know, slagged off on social media. Um, so there's a lot of different things going on there. I think that there is an element of tribalism and we can think about it in that way, but there's also a huge amount in terms of kind of this historical image of fandom, um, the kind of different legitimate behaviours, the genders of the people involved as well. Um, mm -hmm. And you can see that with male fans and My Little Pony. You know, they they are seen as weirdos. No, I mean, this was something that I had never encountered until I saw <laughs> someone's tweet the other day um, about how they were never going to forgive men for what they'd done to My Little Pony. <laughs> and I wasn't aware about the the memes and the pictures and then i googled and i kind of regret going down i mean i should i shouldn't have been surprised no um and i i probably wasn't massively surprised a little bit disappointed um but i had no idea that that, that there was this kind of fetishization culture around uh, there is but that is the very extreme end um and unsurprisingly that is what the press will pick up on because it is extreme you know you you uh -huh. do you do have like legitimate male viewers of My Little Pony who like it because, you know, it's a nice show that highlights empathy and friendship and, you know, things that still we kind of almost make fun of men for. You know, if, mm -hmm. if a man is too emotional, then he's a sissy. You know, he's not a real man. Um, and that discourse plays, I think, into like male fans of, of My Little Pony. Not at the extreme end, um, mm -hmm. but certainly I think with the, the kind of the general male viewer who just, wants to see a nice show about friends. Well, presumably there wouldn't be an issue with a grown woman collecting My Little Pony memorabilia and watching the show. 
No, there was an issue with the Twilight Moms. Um, so, right. <laughs> okay. so there was uh, when the Twilight films came out, they were a group of like older um, female fans who would sort of, I guess, at that point they'd been in the thirties, forties. They 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 were they were mums, um, and they um, kind of you know would go to the cinema, go to red carpet events, whatever, hold up their Team Edward, Team Jacob banners. Um, and they were very, very much criticised for, um, A, lusting after young men. Um, mm-hmm. And I can't remember how old the actors were at the time. But there was that whole issue of, you know, if this was a man doing this, he'd be called a mm-hmm. pervert. Mm, fair enough. Um, but again, it is not appropriate behaviour. So women who are you know, in their 30s, in their 40s, they are clearly too old for sex. They shouldn't be thinking about that. They shouldn't find these men attractive. And they certainly shouldn't be holding banners outside the cinemas, kind of highlighting the fact that they're Team Edward. Um, uh-huh. So again, it's, it's this kind of, this idea of appropriate behaviour. And it was one of the big things around Fifty Shades of Grey, you know, that was being called mummy porn because... Mm. Older women were kind of, not even older women sometimes, but were kind of reading these books and and kind of being able to discuss and talk about their own sexuality. Um, But, you know, women aren't allowed to watch porn. (laughs) What are we talking about? You you can't do that. You're a woman. It is not allowed. So there are all of these appropriate things or ideas of appropriate behaviours for certain ages, certain genders, certain Mm -hmm racial groups or whatever that come into play when we start thinking about gatekeeping and boundary maintenance and identity and stuff. I, I mean, I'm, I'm aware that, that, you know, I said to you, we're only going to be an hour and we might run slightly <laughs> over. <laughs> so um, if you're okay with carrying on talking, yeah, to me, we'll, we'll, just a few other bits and pieces, because I, I mean, like there's a whole load of stuff and you've written very, very widely in this and you're very immersed in this. Um, but there are, Issues as well that I think it's useful for us to have some sort of conversation mm-hmm. around. So one of the things that you have approached in your writing and your research has been some of those controversial areas of fandom. I remember, for example, one of you put out your um, put out an appeal trying to speak to fans of um, oh gosh that pop group with the, uh, uh, Lost Profits. Lost Profits, Ian, yeah, with Ian Watkins. Yeah. <laughs> Which at the time, I mean, so for anyone out there who's not aware about the Lost Prophets, uh, I mean, Ian Watkins, who was their 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 lead singer, um, was convicted on. I, I the only way I can I can put it is heinous child abuse yeah. uh, crimes, um, and that created all kinds of issues for uh, what I hadn't realized was quite a sizable fan mm, community yeah. for that band and for that music. Plus a band who no longer knew what they were doing with their music because suddenly their life's work has been thrown yeah. out the window. Um, and you were kind of interrogating how the fan community responded to mm. that. And I mean, that's a very extreme example of something that we're seeing more and more of yeah. within uh, within fandom, within <laughs> what we always end up referring to as problematic creators. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because, uh, I mean, fair enough, people deserve a fair trial. Ian Watkins was fairly tried and convicted. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of allegations get made. We're in the Me Too generation now, which has been, uh, you know, a fundamental seismic shift mm-hmm. in terms of how we navigate some of our fan spaces in terms of how professional conduct is assessed in terms of how some of those relationships between fandom and the creators are also assessed and also some of the artwork and we're looking at people and some artwork is is artwork and films Mm. and and books is now deemed as no-go territory by by some some by all 
uh, and being a fan of someone who is a problematic creator <laughs> um, can have you be as cancelled as, as as somebody else. Yeah. I mean, how, <laughs> I mean, this is obviously. I mean, this is a freaking hour long topic yeah. in its own right. But like, what what the hell do you do with that? I mean, how does that change what you're doing as a researcher? I, I, I mean, and how do you? Have you had the experience of your own fandoms altered by this? Touchwood, I haven't, um, and hopefully I won't. Um, but it, it, it was something that came to mind when when the story first broke because, like, Lost Prophets were a band from eleven miles down the road from me. You know, they were from mm. Montsbreed, and they were a really successful South Wales rock band. So. When it came out, I was kind of thinking about, you know, oh, my God, first of all, there's that kind of national identity element to it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they're relatively local. Um, they, they've, in some respects, put Wales on the map um, in, in the music scene. Um, and, and they were very, very su- successful. Um, but as a fan, I'm like, I've, I've got tattoos from various different you know, properties that I'm fans of. I've got an X-Files tattoo, obviously, but I've also got lyrics from um, my favourite band. And I was like, shit, you know, what what would happen if that was my favourite band? Like, how would I feel? Mm. Um, Particularly when it comes to music, because music is so emotive. um, And for a lot of people, we connect with music in ways that we don't connect with TV or books or or stuff like that. Um, And particularly the genre of music that Lost Prophets were were in, um, you know, kind of, sort of that emo rock kind of, of genre does typically attract um, people who I don't know, might say kind of feel extensively. Um, so when you've got a connection to that music and it becomes part of your identity and you associate yourself with it so strongly and so deeply, how the hell do you react to the front man of that band just performing these absolutely vile acts. Um, and that's what got me interested because I was just like, I I do not know how I would react to this. Mm. Um, but also, and, and understandably, um, the victims in this case needs to be the main focus. You know, there has to be an investigation into what happens so that we can, you know, enact justice for the victims, um, which I do not dispute at all. But within that, um, kind of the voices of fans sort of get left out. Um, And there's a sense, unlike when a celebrity dies and you can grieve, you can mourn online, in particular online spaces, and you can share that grief with others who feel the same way. When we have things like, the Ian Watkins case happened, when we have things like some of the stuff coming out of Me Too, Hmm. the focus moves from fans because it has to focus on on the victims. But it means that fans don't have a space to talk about their own feelings. And those feelings are legitimate, even if perhaps to a different degree. Like, I don't want to say a lesser extent, but but Hmm. there is a different degree. You know, all things are relative. Um, And if you are a fan of Lost Profits and you haven't actually been affected by, you know, any any child abuse, you don't know the people that were involved in this. The thing that affects you is the loss of your fandom, you know, the mm. loss of this text that means a huge amount to you. So that's what I was really interested in. Um, and I kind of compared it to, to some of the work that's been done on Michael Jackson, because obviously there were allegations there. Mm. Um, 
Jackson kind of never went to trial. It was settled out of court. So there's sorry, my cat has just come upstairs. Um, so there's this sense that actually fans can still be fans of Michael Jackson because nothing was ever mm. made official. Um, so when Jackson died, people could grieve and they could grieve in online spaces, and and that was absolutely fine. But Lost Profits fans couldn't do that. So I was interested in in kind of how they were performing their fandom if they were performing it at all um, after the the Watkins trial and conviction, mm. and also how it made them reflect on their fandom. Like, could they still listen to the music knowing what he had done? And it was really interesting, the, the kinds of, like, tactics um, and sort of rationalisations that fans were making. So some of them were like, I don't listen to any of it, no. I can't, it's tainted, you know. If he was the drummer, maybe I could listen to it, but he was the lead, lead singer, I can't. Mm-hmm. Others kind of say, well, you know, the band wasn't just Ian Watkins, it was a group effort. They all, you know, put themselves into creating this music and it's not fair that the others should be penalised just because of Ian Watkins. And then others kind of took this really negotiated stance. So there were a couple of people who said, you know, rumours were circulating about Watkins in the fandom for a long period of time before these, these allegations came out. So I will listen to the music up to the point of the initial rumours, but I won't listen to anything after that mm. because we kind of know he was being really dodgy. Um, and I find that a really sort of interesting justification for what things we will listen to or what things we won't listen to. Um, and we see that in debates coming out with me too, like Joss Whedon is a really good example because, yeah. you know, Buffy is an amazing text um, and it is understandably really kind of heartbreaking for fans to, to now be faced with the idea that Joss Whedon actually is a bit of a dick. Um, but... Buffy isn't just about Joss Whedon. You know, there are all of the cast, there's all of the crew, there's different you know, writers, different showrunners for different seasons. It's very much a group effort, probably more so than, than a band is because mm. it's such a large scale. So we then have to think about the ethics and the morals of, well, you know, do we do we quantify this and say, well, okay, if Joss Whedon only, you know, was involved for 10% of the entire run of Buffy, it's okay for me to watch it because the other 90% was made up of other people, you know, and, and there are different ways that we start thinking about um, how and why we justify our involvement or our, you know, ceasing involvement with these these different fandoms. I, I mean, I find it fascinating. We, we've talked about this before on, mm. on, on, our, on our various uh, shows and events uh, in relation to Me Too and some of the problematic areas whenever it first came out we, we did a, a show about this stuff i mean for instance like for me roman polanski is someone who i really struggle with yeah you know i was i was always i mean i remember hearing stuff and i was a bit iffy and then when i finally actually read the whole thing about what had gone on that for me was my cutoff yeah. point and i can just about watch his stuff before <laughs> and it, it, it literally is that thing is like i try to consciously yeah. avoid anything that's come since mm-hmm. But then you have someone like Woody Allen, whose films I, rightly or wrongly, I adore. Yeah. Um, and then you you know, who's somebody who has gone through a system and not been found against, mm-hmm. and yet there is still a great number of people out there who, if they know that you like his films, will say, then I'm not talking to you and I'm yeah. shutting you down. Yeah. And even me saying this on this podcast runs the risk of people sort of instantly clicking on yeah. follow because how dare you like this this person? Because yeah. where do you draw the line? I mean, we were talking briefly beforehand about Harry Potter, mm-hmm. um, which is, we'll not go massively down <laughs> that one, but it's, it's the one that a lot of people are centering around at yeah. the moment because of the comments that J.K. Rowling has said in relation to uh, gender and, and the trans community. Mm-hmm. 
and that has caused a lot of issues for folk who i mean fair enough more and more of them are seeing more and more of the problems within jk yeah. rowling's writing anyway yeah. that were always there <laughs> never mind issues about trans um but i mean i i, I mean, i'm someone I've, I've put money into going to see harry potter world yeah. you know does that make me a bad person how do i navigate that fandom and i'm someone who's not really a harry potter fan yeah um Funny enough, I've, I've just co-written a chapter with um, Simone Dreesen about this for um, for the book that we're co-editing on, on controversy, complicity and conflict in fandom. Um, and we, we, so we ran a survey where we were talking um, to people about kind of their general experiences with um, with kind of problematic creators. But unsurprisingly, we did a lot of responses from Harry Potter fans. And those were really, really interesting. So some people said, well, I won't pay to go and see the films in the cinema but I will pirate them. Like, I'm not going to give them my money, which fair enough, you know, that mm-hmm. is, I know I'm saying this on a podcast, but that is probably something that I will do. Like, I'm not going to pay to go and watch these films, but if I can get them via other means, then I'll I'll do that. Um, other people were saying, well, you know, it's, it's a text that has a lot of people involved in it. And, you know, some of those people, like, you know, Emma Watson, um, Rupert Grint and Dan Radcliffe have all come out and been supportive of trans communities. So they mm. very clearly, you know, are on the opposite side of the spectrum to JK Rowling. So what happens with, you know, with kind of them if we decide to like boycott the entirety of Harry Potter? Um, we're not just boycotting Rowling. Mm. Obviously, there are issues around money because, you know, she's the rights holder. There's there's a lot of stuff going on there. Um, but other fans would say things like, well, you know, I'm going to keep reading the books. I bought the books years and years ago and I love the books. Um, so I'm going to keep reading them. Mm. Partly because, to some extent, once the books are released, the author's got no control over them. You know, you can mm. read those books and think whatever the hell you want. And Rowling can't stop you from doing so. Um, and that's linked into some of the most interesting responses we had, which were... I am going to keep on writing Harry Potter fan fiction, but I'm going to specifically include gay and trans characters because I know J.K. Rowling hates it. So, like, this is kind of my way of, like, saying fuck you to Rowling in a really participatory context. So you remain involved in that fandom, but you do things deliberately because mm. you know the creator isn't going to like it. Um, and and it's something that, that I struggle with because... Up to a point, I would have called myself a fan of Harry Potter. Now I mm. am sort of reconsidering that label for myself. Mm. Um, but, you know, I, I went to my MA graduation wearing a Ravenclaw tie because, you know, of all the houses, I am Ravenclaw. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I went to the Wisdom World of Harry Potter in Japan a few years ago and I've got my own wands. Um, so, so it is... And even though I kind of, you know, wouldn't call myself like a, a mega fan, you know, certainly not to the extent of being a fan of the X-Files or The Walking Dead, yeah. I'm still kind of struggling with how do I now label myself, given I'm very, very opposed to what Rowling is doing and saying. Um, I mean, it, it it sounds from from what you're saying as well, though, that, that, that actually there is space within fandom to allow for those other approaches to to still be a fan of a work and to remodel it in a way that that works for you yeah whilst not completely endorsing whatever's going on yeah i think it's it's almost like an ongoing series of complex negotiations um mm. particularly because like as people obviously we change over time so our morals our ethics our, our behaviors and stuff will change over time anyway um there are some things I won't do, like I wouldn't give Rowling any more money. So I, I will not buy any more kind of Harry Potter 
um, texts or objects. I won't collect things anymore. But that's not to say that I wouldn't perhaps, you know, go on eBay and buy a time to own a necklace from someone secondhand. Um, mm. So th- there are different ways we can negotiate that, I think, while kind of vehemently opposing what the creator is saying. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's very easy, particularly on social media, to kind of break it down into extremes. Um, and, you know, we, we kind of touched upon this a, a bit earlier, and I am very fundamentally opposed to what Rowling says. I completely disagree with her, and I think she's just awful and should shut up, <laughs> basically. Um, so there are things that I don't think we can and should negotiate on. Mm-hmm. But the things that I think we, we you know, we, we shouldn't negotiate on are things that other people will say, well, yeah, we should negotiate on these. And, you know, because people have different points of view and you kind of never necessarily go into convert other people to what you believe, particularly on social media, where it's very easy to go into extremes within these discourses yeah. um, rather than perhaps look at maybe some of the nuances and go, well, OK, yeah, as a, you know, as, as a queer teen, actually, the Harry Potter books meant a lot to me because I found my own sense of community um, and I've grown up in this fandom that's really supportive of me. And you wouldn't want to lose that, regardless of what Rowling kind of says and the fact that, you know, she is extremely transphobic. The things that the texts have done for you have almost been done despite Rowling. You know, she mm-hmm. wrote them. But what they mean to you as a fan, we kind of make ourselves. We decide what uh, influence the text is going to have. We decide how engaged we're going to become with it. And we decide what we are going to do with that text. Um, and I think sometimes that nuance sometimes gets maybe overlooked um, in some of the broader conversations, conversations that should take place, but which kind of take place without really considering fans as mm-hmm. as complex communities, which they are. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's, it's that nuance, I think, that's, that's often missing. And it's the thing that... that why i avoid certain conversations yeah. on social media <laughs> um because it is something that you know it feels like you need to sort of tease this out over a, you know a 30 minute conversation not over two tweets exactly that yeah. will be taken away and used to to bait you which is is and and fandom i guess is it's increasingly for me feels like a place that lacks nuance they um, they can be um I think it depends on the platforms that we use as well. Like, like you said, with, with tweets, you know, you are limited to the amount of characters you can use. And even if you've got a thread of like 20 tweets, like explaining you a point of view, one of them is going to get highlighted and possibly misrepresent the entire argument. Um, but if you are having a conversation in like, I don't know, a subreddit dedicated to your fandom, you've got the opportunity for, to say a lot more um, and to have kind of more in-depth debates. So I think some of it is kind of the platform affordances that maybe limit um, how much we can say or the ways that people kind of respond to what we say. Whereas on other platforms, perhaps you know, there's that ability to discuss in more depth, not in the same mm. way that you know you would in conversation. Like even the stuff we've talked about in the last like hour or so is wide ranging, and most of it we could probably talk for like another few hours. You're not going to get that <laughs> online, but um, but yeah, the, there's need for nuance, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like we, you and I both know we could carry this conversation yeah. <laughs> on indefinitely. Um, so I, I don't want to take up any more of your time today, but I've I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed 
having the chat about if people want to kind of connect with your your stuff and your research where should they go um so my twitter is at memories underscore child um so feel free to follow me there i've also got links to various like blog posts open access articles on my website which is bethanvjones.wordpress.com um, and I'm quite happy to share articles. Like if they're not open access, just drop me a line on the contact form and I can send it over to you. Um, so, uh, yeah. Brian, and what's what's next for your research? What, what should we be looking out for in the in the near future? Ooh, so the, um, the edited collection I'm really excited about. That's gone off. So the proposal has gone off to Iowa Press um, and we're waiting for kind of the, the review to come back from that. So hopefully that will be published maybe towards the end of next year. The Juno special issue hopefully will be coming out around spring next year as well. So those, like I know I'm biased because I'm involved, those are going to have some really, really good chapters and, and articles in them. The X-Files book, which is looking at, first, well, it's going to be published in readiness for the 30th anniversary. So that'll be published in August next year. Um, and I'm also doing work on what I'm calling dark fandom. So um, I'm giving a couple of talks over the next uh, couple of months looking at true crime fandom um, and sort of investigative journalism and maybe the extremes to which um, people investigate true crime stories um, mm-hmm. using a sort of fanish lens. So, yeah, there's there's a few different things I've, I've kind of got coming up that I'm quite excited about. I love the diversity of this stuff. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's a, such a relief. It's a, so so much there. So I think there's probably for anyone who's interested in stuff, <laughs> you will find something I guarantee you in, in Bethan's work uh, to merit further research and hopefully start you off on some other uh, fandomish yep. journey. Uh, Bethan, hopefully this isn't the last time we chat to you. Hopefully we can we can have you on again at some point. Definitely, uh, that'd be really this, good. This is- this is great yeah. um, folks at home uh, hopefully you've enjoyed today uh, do give Bethan a follow uh, if you enjoyed the show uh, make sure you hit the subscribe button uh, tell your friends about it don't forget we're on social media we're on Twitter Facebook Instagram uh, we're also on YouTube so like subscribe add comments tell us what you think and uh, we will catch you again very very soon until then cheerio cheerio